Deep in the farthest recesses of the most distant jungle lies a city. A city populated by the most mysterious, terrifying, and downright grotesque denizens ever seen by mortal eye. Here, in the darkened corners of this cavernous locale, sits an ordinary, average brick building with an innocuous, ordinary, average, blinking neon sign which reads, On Air. It is here where each week, Seth Breedlove and Mark Matsky convene to discuss the greatest mysteries the world has ever known. Now, strap on your hiking boots, grab your trusty walking stick, and don't forget your machete as we begin our journey through Monsteropolis. <laughs> In the style of Victorian spookiness. We should talk. Okay, this is Monsteropolis' show <laughs> about anomalies, legends, and monsters. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. Joined, as always, by my pal, Mark Matsky. Merry Christmas, Seth. Hey, Merry Christmas. This is coming out. I'm probably putting this out. Shoot. <laughs> Christmas Eve, maybe? Christmas Eve. Yeah. That would make sense. Um, so if it, yeah, Merry Christmas to you as well, and Merry Christmas to all of our listeners. Um. Uh, I just completely blanked. What's my name? You are, you are, where are we? Seth Breedlove. That's true. Yeah. Um, okay. So what is going on? I cannot focus. No focus. Aaron and I are convinced there's a gas leak in here because every day we find that we are like barely coherent by like two or three in the (laughs) afternoon and it is two 30 right now. Hmm. So it makes sense. So this is our, um, third our, it's our third annual third annual christmas yeah. ghost story readathon <laughs> extravaganza extravaganza yeah um i wanted to say what i start, started saying when i hit record was i have a hard time there's two things i have a hard time one is finding a story that isn't hundreds of pages long right that's that's very difficult the other thing is that i have a hard time finding stories that aren't so old English prose yes. that that I can't read it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping today's is a little yeah. more on on target with what I'm trying to do. Um, how do you pick yours? Like, what are you looking for? Oh, well, I mean, length is probably the first thing that I'm looking for. And like you, I mean, there's, there's kind of this, um, I don't want... Without naming authors, I can say it this way. Not all ghost stories are created equal, mm-hmm. which is to say, I think some of these authors got a reputation for being ghost story writers, and then they just started writing prolifically, like as many yeah. stories with even just like a, a, a slight relationship to a ghost or scary thing, and they didn't necessarily feel compelled to like wrap up loose ends. Yeah. So some of these stories are just sort of like vaguely scary. And I don't I didn't want to read a story like that per se. So I was looking for brevity, sort of a lack of of language that would keep us out of the story. And then something that was like like a legitimate payoff for having listened this long mm. that would be somewhat, you know, kind of chilling and and spooky and it had to have some direct reference to Christmas. 
That was like my fourth criteria, even if it was super passing. And that's definitely the case in the story that I selected towards the beginning. It like mentions Christmas once Mm -hmm. and it never really trades then again on any other Christmassy thing. It's funny, but it's close enough. I'm frantically running through mine to make sure it has any connection to Christmas. I don't know if it does or not. I read it in part. I did not read the whole thing. I just thought it was a cool story and there's a ghost involved. Yeah. I, the one I picked last year has remained with me and evolved. It's hard to top that one because you, I, the thing like, that knocked me out was it was a Dickens story, Dickens, yeah, but not um, Christmas Carol. It, it was, didn't we figure out it was pre-Christmas it was Carol? pre-Christmas Carol. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm going to start us off. It's always better if you go last because um, you're good at this and I'm not. <laughs> oh, so mine is called. The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood. Uh, this was written in 1908 and was featured in Pall Mall magazine, Ooh. which I believe Pall Mall was like Cigarette. cigarettes yeah, or tobacco, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read this. I'm going off my phone. I had it on here, but I don't. Uh, anyway, um, I'm going to read this. Uh, You're not promoting smoking by reading the story. Or am I? <laughs> Sorry, this show is actually sponsored by Pall Mall Cigarettes. One hundred percent doctor approved. Uh, the menthol filter for your taste enjoyment. Uh, when the oh, immediately I had a notification pop up. When the words "not guilty" sounded through the crowded courtroom that dark December afternoon, Arthur Wilbraham, the great criminal KC and leader for the triumphant defense was represented by his junior, but Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across to his chambers like lightning. It's what we expected, I think, said the barrister without emotion, and personally I am glad the case is over. There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defense of John Turk, the murderer, on a plea of insanity, had been successful, for no doubt he felt, as everybody who had watched the case felt, that no man had ever better deserved the gallows. I'm glad too, said Johnson. He had sat in the court for 10 days watching the face of the man who had carried out with callous detail one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. B. Counsel glanced up at his secretary. They were more than employer and employed. For family and other reasons, they were friends. Ah, I remember, yes, he said with a kind smile. And you want to get away for Christmas? There we go. It's Christmas. Yeah. Uh, You're going to skate and ski in the Alps, aren't you? If I was your age, I'd come with you. Johnson laughed shortly. He was a young man of 26 with a delicate face like a girl's. I can, ca- <laughs> I, can- I can catch the morning boat now, he said. But that's not the reason I'm glad the trial is over. I'm glad it's over because I've seen the last of that man's dreadful p- face. It positively haunted me. Bat white skin with the black hair brushed low over the forehead is a thing I shall never forget. And the description of the way the dismembered body was crammed and packed with lime into that. Don't dwell on it, my dear fellow, interrupted the other, looking at him curiously out of his keen eyes. Don't think about it. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants them. He paused a moment. Now go, he added presently, and enjoy your holiday. I shall want all your energy for my parliamentary work when you get back. And don't break your neck skiing. Johnson shook hands and took his leave. At the door, he turned suddenly. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you, he said. 
Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? It's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open. Of course, I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. You shall have it the moment I get home. I promise to take great care of it, said Johnson gratefully, delighted to think that within 30 hours he would be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. There's this word they keep using, be thought of that. I think that's the name of this. So this is where, where I get confused by these stories. Be thought of that criminal court was like an evil dream in his mind. He dined at his club and went on to Bloomsbury, where he occupied the top floor in one of those old gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his own was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was cheerless, and he looked forward heartily to a change. The night was even more cheerless. It was miserable, and few people were about. A cold, sleety rain was driving down the streets before the keenest east wind he had ever felt. It howled dismally among the big, gloomy houses of the great squares, and when he reached his rooms, he heard it whistling and shouting over the world of black roofs beyond his windows. In the hall, he met his landlady, shading a candle from the drafts with her thin hand. This come by a man, Mr. Wilbram, sir. She pointed to what was evidently the kit bag, and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. I shall be going abroad in the morning for ten days, Mrs. Monks, he said. I'll leave an address for letters. And I hope you have a Merry Christmas, sir, <laughs> she said in a raucous, wheezy voice that suggested spirits and better weather than this. I hope so, too, replied her lodger, shuddering a little as the wind went roaring down the street outside. When he got upstairs, he heard the sleet volleying against the window panes. He put his kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee and then set about putting a few things in order for his absence. And now I must pack, such as my packing is, he laughed to himself and set to, set to work at once. He liked the packing, for it brought the snow mountains so vividly before him and made him forget the unpleasant scenes of the past ten days. Besides, it was not elaborate in nature. His friend had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped with holes around the neck for the brass bar and padlock. It was a bit shapeless, true, and not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited, and there was no need to pack carefully. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap and gloves, his skates and climbing boots, his sweaters, snow boots, and ear caps, and then on the top of these he piled his woolen sh shirts and underwear, his thick socks, putties, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came next, in case the hotel people pressed for dressed for dinner, and then, thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused a moment to reflect. That's the worst of these kit, kit bags, he mused vaguely, standing in the center of the sitting room where he had come to fetch some string. It was after ten o'clock. A furious gust of wind rattled the windows as though to hurry him up, and he thought with pity of the poor Londoners, whose Christmas would be spent in such a climate, whilst he was skimming over snowy slopes in bright sunshine and dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls. Ah, that reminded him. He must put in his dancing pumps and evening socks. He crossed over from his sitting room to the cupboard on the landing where he kept his linen. As he did so, he heard someone coming softly up the stairs. He stood still a moment on the standing to listen. It was Mrs. Monk's step, he thought. She must be coming up with the last post. But then the steps ceased suddenly, and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down, and he came to the conclusion they were too heavy to be those of the bibulous landlady? No doubt they belonged to a late lodger who had mistaken his floor. 
He went into his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best he could. Be kit bag by his be kit bag by this time was two thirds full and stood upright on its own face like a sack of flour. For the first time, he noticed that it was old and dirty. The canvas faded and worn, and that it had obviously been subjected to rather rough treatment. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him, certainly not a new one, or one that this chief valued. He gave the matter... Uh, I just lost my place. Hold on. He gave the matter a passing thought and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below, for Mrs. Monks had not com- come up with letters, and the floor was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard a soft tread of someone padding about over the bare boards, cautiously, stealthily, as silently as possible, and further, that the sounds had been lately coming distinctly nearer. For the first time in his life, he began to feel a little creepy. Then, as though to emphasize this feeling, an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having just packed his recalcitrant, white shirts he noticed that the top of the kit bag lopped over towards him with an extraordinary resemblance to a human face the the camas fell into a fold like a nose and forehead and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes a shadow or was it a travel stain for he could not tell exactly looked like hair it gave him rather a turn for it was so absurdly so outrageously like the face of john turk the murderer He laughed and went into the front room where the light was stronger. That horrid case has got on my mind, he thought. I shall be glad of a change of scene and air. In the sitting room, however, he was not pleased to hear again that stealthily tread upon the stairs and to realize that it was much closer than before, as well as unmistakably real. And this time he got up and went out to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. He went to the floor below, not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There was not a stick of furniture large enough to hide a dog. Then he called over the banisters to Mrs. Monk's, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep, everyone except himself and the owner of this soft and stealthy tread. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. It must have been the wind, after all, although it seemed so very real and close. He went back to his packing. It was by this time getting on towards midnight. He drank his coffee up and lit another pipe, the last before turning in. It is difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water, but often so lightly that they claim no definite recognition from the consciousness. Then a point is reached where the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion and the mind realizes that something has happened. With something of a start, Johnson suddenly recognized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous. Also that for some time past, the causes of this feeling had been gathering slowly in his mind, but that he had only reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. It was a singular and curious malaise that had come over him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. He felt as though he were doing something that was strongly objected to by another person, another person, moreover, who had some right to object. It was a most disturbing and disagreeable disagreeable feeling, not unlike the persistent promptings of conscience, 
almost, in fact, as if he were doing something he knew to be wrong. Yet, though he searched vigorously and honestly in his mind, he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of this growing uneasiness, and it perplexed him. More, it distressed and frightened him. Pure nerves, I suppose, he said aloud with a forced laugh. Mountain air will cure all that. Ah, he added, still speaking to himself, and that reminds me, my snow glasses. He was standing by the door of the bedroom during this brief soliloquy, and as he passed quickly towards the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard, he saw out of the corner of his eye the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position with one hand on the banisters and the face peering up towards the landing, and at the same moment he heard a shuffling footstep. The person who had been creeping about below all this time had at last come up to his own floor. Who in the world could it be, and what in the name of heaven did he want? Johnson caught his breath sharply and stood stock still. Then after a few seconds' hesitation, he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs, he saw to his utter amazement, were empty. There was no one. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him, and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes, he peered steadily into the shadows that congregated about the top of the staircase where he had seen the figure, and then he walked fast, almost ran, in fact, into the light of the front room. But hardly had he passed into the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into his bedroom. It was a heavy, but at the same time, a stealthy footstep, the tread of somebody who did not wish to be seen. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced leaped the boundary line and entered the state of fear, almost of acute, unreasoning fear. Before it turned into terror, there was a further boundary to cross, and beyond that again lay the region of pure horror. Johnson's position was an unenviable one. "'By Jove! That was someone on the stairs then,' he muttered, his flesh crawling all over, "'and whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom.' His delicate, pale face turned absolutely white, and for some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Then he realized intuitively that delay only set a premium upon fear, and he crossed the landing boldly and went straight into the other room where a few seconds before the steps had disappeared. "'Who's there? Is that you, Mrs. Monks?' he called aloud as he went and heard the first half of his words echo down the empty stairs, while the second half fell dead against the curtains in a room that apparently held no other human figures than his own. "'Who's there?' he called again in a voice unnecessarily loud and that only just held firm. "'What do you want here?' The curtains swayed very slightly, and as he saw it, his heart almost felt his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat. Yet he dashed forward and drew them aside with a rush. A window, streaming with rain, was all that met his gaze. He continued his search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but rows of clothes hanging motionless, and under the bed there was no sign of anyone hiding. He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the kit bag. Odd, he thought. That's not where I left it. A few, mo a few moments before, it had surely been on his right, between the bed and the bath. He did not remember having moved it. It was very curious. What in the world was the matter with everything? Were all his senses gone queer? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass with the force of small gunshot, and then fled away howling dismally over the waste of Bloomsbury roofs. A sudden vision of the channel next day rose in his mind and recalled him sharply to realities. There's no one here at any rate, that's quite clear, he exclaimed aloud. 
Yet at the time he uttered them, he knew perfectly well that his words were not true and that he did not believe them himself. He felt exactly as though someone was hiding close about him, watching all his movements, trying to hinder his packing in some way. And two of my senses, he added, keeping up the pretense, have played me the most absurd tricks. The steps I heard and the figure I saw were both entirely imaginary. He went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit bag was no longer where he had left it. It had been dragged nearer to the door. What what happened afterwards that night happened, of course, to a man already excited by fear and was perceived by a man that had not fooled the proper control, therefore, of the senses. Outwardly, Johnson remained calm and master of himself to the end, pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation or was merely delusions of his tired nerves. But inwardly, in his very heart, he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in the empty suite when he came in, that this person had watched his opportunity and then stealthily made his way up to the bedroom and that all he saw and heard afterwards from the moving of the kit bag to well to the other things this story has to tell were caused directly by the presence of this invisible person. And it was here, just when he most desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received day after day upon the mental plates exposed in the courtroom of the old Bailey came strongly to light and developed themselves in the dark room of his inner vision. Unpleasant, haunting memories have a way of coming to life again just when the mind least desires them. In the silent watches of the night, on sleepless pillows during the lonely hours spent by sick and dying beds. And so now, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the dreadful face of John Turk, the murderer, lowering at him from every corner of his mental field of vision. The white skin, the evil eyes, and the fringe of black hair low over the forehead. All the pictures of those ten days in court crowded back into his mind unbidden and very vivid. This is all rubbish and nerves, he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from his chair. I shall finish my packing and go to bed. I'm overwrought, overtired. No doubt at this rate, I shall hear steps and things all night. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across to the bedroom, humming a music hall song as he went, a trifle too loud to be natural. And the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than he had left it, and just over its crumpled top he saw a head and face slowly sinking down out of sight, as though someone were crouching behind it to hide, and at the same moment a sound like a long-drawn sigh was distinctly audible in the still air about him between the gusts of the storm outside. Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated, (laughs) But at first, such a wave of terror came over him that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost hysterical impulse to scream aloud. That sigh seemed in his very ear, and the air still quivered with it. It was unmistakably a human sigh. Who's there? he said at length, finding his voice, but thought he meant to speak with loud dis- but though he meant to speak with loud decision, the tones came out instead in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost the control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward so that he could see all around and over the kit bag. Of course, there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. 
He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack where it had fallen over, being only three parts full. And then he saw for the first time that round the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull dull crimson. It was an old and faded bloodstain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hand as if though they had been burnt. At the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch forward towards the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realized, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut to with a resounding bang. At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch, and the room, and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had not been possessed of real pluck, he might have done all manner of foolish things. As it was, however, he pulled himself together and groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light on again. But the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on it a-swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets, so that it was some moments before he found the switch. And in those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers. But even then, in those frenzied moments of alarm, so swift and alert are the impressions of a man keying up by a vivid emotion, he had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light, and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness. It was but the impulse of a moment, however, and before he had time to act upon it, he had yielded automatically to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It it would have been better for him to have stayed in the shelter of the kind darkness. For there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk, the murderer. Not three feet from him, the man stood... The fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of the forehead, the whole horrible presentment of the scoundrel as vivid as he had seen him day after day in the old Bailey, when he stood there in the dock, cynical and callous, under the very shadows of the gallows. In a flash, Johnson realized what it all meant. The dirty and much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stretched condition of the bulging sides— He remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag for burial, the ghastly dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself produced his evidence. It all came back to him as clear as day. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, but before he could actually turn it, the very thing that he most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, that heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into words. It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and then falling in a heap upon the floor of the landing as he tried frantically to make his way into the front room. He remained unconscious for a long time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized that he was lying, stiff and bruised, on the cold boards. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he promptly fainted again. When he woke the second time, the wintry dawn was just beginning to peep in at the windows, painting the stairs a cheerless, dismal gray, and he managed to crawl into the front room and cover himself with an overcoat in the armchair, where at length he fell asleep. A great clamor woke him. 
He recognized Mrs. Monk's voice, loud and voluble. What? You ain't been to bed, sir. Are you ill, or has anything happened? And there's an urgent gentleman to see you, though it ain't seven o'clock yet. Who is it? He stammered. I'm all right, thanks. Fell asleep in my chair, I suppose. Someone from Wilbram's, and he says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad. Show him up, please, at once, said Johnson, whose head was whirling, and his mind was still full of dreadful visions. Mr. Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies and explained, explained briefly and quickly that a, an absurd mistake had been made and that the wrong kit bag had been sent over the night before. Henry somehow got a hold of the one that came over from the courtroom, and Mr. Wilbraham only discovered it when he saw his own lying in his room and asked why it had not gone to you, the man said. Oh, said Johnson stupidly. And he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir, I'm afraid, the man continued, without the ghost of an expression on his face. The one John Turk packed the dead both in the dead body in. Mr. Wilbraham's awful upset about it, sir, and told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one as you were leaving by the boat. He pointed to a clean looking kit bag on the floor, which he had just brought, and I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes Johnson could not find his voice. At last, he pointed in the direction of his bedroom. Perhaps you would kindly unpack it for me, just empty the things out on the floor. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for five minutes. Johnson heard the shifting to and fro of the bag and the rattle of the skates and boots being unpacked. Thank you, sir, the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. And can I do anything more to help you, sir? What is it? asked Johnson, seeing that he still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. Beg your pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you'd maybe like to know what's happened. Yes. John Turk killed himself last night with poison immediately on getting his release, and he left a note for Mr. Wilbraham saying as he'd be much obliged if they'd have put him away, same as the woman he murdered in the old kit bag. What time did he do it, asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, the warder says. The end. Whoa. Got some goosebumps. Yeah. Did you, <laughs> that was creepier than I was expecting. That's been the case with all these stories. Yeah. You know, you, you in the run up to choosing one, it's like, yeah, okay, that'll be good. And then you get into the story itself uh-huh. and something takes over. It's That's a good one. That's Man, a really uh, good one. Really yeah. Good. Very well done. Okay. So, uh, this story is entitled The Ghost's Summons by Ada Buison. First appeared in Belgravia in January 1868. And early on in the story, it talks about um, going into my surgery a couple times, and it's used in the same way as like a doctor's office. So, at first, when I was reading it, it threw me off. Like, what does he mean, surgery? But it's the doctor's office. So the ghost summons. Wanted, sir, a patient. It was in the early days of my professional career when patients were scarce and fees scarcer. And though I was in the act of sitting down to my chop and had promised myself a glass of steaming punch afterwards, in honor of the Christmas season, I hurried instantly into my surgery. I entered briskly, but no sooner did I catch sight of the figure standing leaning against the counter Then I started back with a strange feeling of horror for which the life of me I could not comprehend. Never shall I forget the ghastliness of that face, the white horror stamped upon every feature. 
the agony which seemed to sink the very eyes beneath the contracted brows. It was awful to me to behold, unaccustomed as I was to scenes of terror. You seek advice, I began, with some hesitation. No, I'm not ill. You require then? Hush, he interrupted, approaching more nearly and dropping his already low murmur to a mere whisper. I believe you are not rich. Would you be willing to earn a thousand pounds? <laughs> a thousand pounds? His words seemed to burn my very ears. I should be thankful if I could do so honestly, I replied with dignity. What is the service required of me? A peculiar look of intense horror passed over the white face before me, but the blue-black lips answered firmly, to attend a deathbed. A thousand pounds to attend a deathbed? Where am I to go then? Whose is it? Mine. The voice in which this was said sounded so hollow and distant that involuntarily I shrank back. Yours? What nonsense! You're not a dying man. You're pale, but you appear perfectly healthy. You— Hush! he interrupted. I know all this. You cannot be more convinced of my physical health than I am myself. Yet I know that before the clock tolls the first hour after midnight, I shall be a dead man. But— he shuddered slightly, but stretching out his hand commandingly motioned me to be silent. I am but too well informed of what I affirm, he said quietly. I have received a mysterious summons from the dead. No mortal aid can avail me. I am as doomed as the wretch on whom the judge has passed sentence. I do not come either to seek your advice or to argue the matter with you, but simply to buy your services. I offer you a thousand pounds to pass the night in my chamber and witness the scene which takes place. The sum may appear to you extravagant, but I have no further need to count the cost of any gratification, and the spectacle you will have to witness is no common sight of horror. The words, strange as they were, were spoken calmly enough. But as the last sentence dropped slowly from the livid lips, an expression of such wild horror again passed over the stranger's face that, in spite of the immense fee, I hesitated to answer. You fear to trust to the promise of a dead man? See, hear, and be convinced, he exclaimed eagerly. And the next instant, on the counter between us, lay a parchment document, and following the indication of that white muscular hand, I read the words... And to Mr. Frederick Reed of 14 High Street, Alton, I bequeath the sum of 1,000 pounds for certain service rendered to me. I have had that will drawn up within the last 24 hours, and I signed it an hour ago in the presence of competent witnesses. I am prepared, you see. Now, do you accept my offer or not? My answer was to walk across the room and take down my hat and then locked the door of the surgery communicating with the house. It was a dark, icy cold night, and somehow the courage and determination which the sight of my own name in connection with a thousand pounds had given me flagged considerably as I found myself hurried along through the silent darkness by a man whose deathbed I was about to attend. He was grimly silent. But as his hand touched mine, in spite of the frost, it felt like a burning coal— on we went, tramp, tramp through the snow, 
On, on, till even I grew weary, and at length on my appalled ear struck the chimes of a church clock, whilst close at hand I distinguished the snowy hillocks of a churchyard. Heavens, was this the awful scene of which I was to be the witness to take place veritably amongst the dead? Eleven, groaned the doomed man. Gracious God, but two hours more, and that ghostly messenger will bring the summons. Come, come, for mercy's sake, let us hasten. There was but a short road separating us now from a wall which surrounded a large mansion, and along this we hastened until we reached a small door. Passing through this, in a few minutes we were stealthily ascending the private staircase to a splendidly furnished apartment, which left no doubt of the wealth of its owner. All was intensely silent, however, through the house, and about this room in particular there was a stillness that, as I gazed around, struck me as almost ghastly. My companion glanced at the clock on the mantel shelf and sank into a large chair by the side of the fire with a shudder. Only an hour and a half longer, he muttered. Great heaven, I thought I had more fortitude. This horror unmans me. Then in a fiercer tone and clutching my arm, he added, Ha! You mock me. You think me mad. But wait till you see. Wait till you see. I put my hand on his wrist, for there was now a fever in his sunken eyes which checked the superstitious chill which had been gathering over me and made me hope that, after all, my first suspicion was correct and that my patient was but the victim of some fearful hallucination. Mock you, I answered soothingly, far from it. I sympathize intensely with you and would do much to aid you. You require sleep, lie down, and leave me to watch." He groaned, but rose, and began throwing off his clothes, and watching my opportunity, I slipped a sleeping powder, which I had managed to put in my pocket before leaving the surgery, into the tumbler of claret that stood beside him. The more I saw, the more I felt convinced that it was the nervous system of my patient which required my attention. It was with sincere satisfaction I saw him drink the wine and then stretch himself on the luxurious bed. Ha! thought I, as the clock struck twelve, and instead of a groan, the deep breathing of the sleeper sounded through the room. You won't receive any summons tonight, and I may make myself comfortable. Noiselessly, therefore, I replenished the fire, poured myself out a large glass of wine, and drawing the curtain so that the firelight should not disturb the sleeper, I put myself in a position to follow his example. How long I slept, I know not, but suddenly I aroused with a start, and as ghostly a thrill of horror as ever I remember to have felt in my life. Something, what I knew not, seemed near, something nameless, but unutterably awful. I gazed round. The fire emitted a faint blue glow just sufficient to enable me to see that the room was exactly the same as when I fell asleep, but that the long hand of the clock wanted but five minutes of the mysterious hour which was to be the death moment— of the summoned man. Was there anything in it then? Any truth in the strange story he had told? The silence was intense. I could not even hear a breath from the bed, and I was about to rise and approach, when again that awful horror seized me, and at the same moment my eye fell upon the mirror opposite the door, and I saw, great heaven, that awful shape, that ghastly mockery of what had been humanity. Was it really a messenger from the buried, quiet dead? It stood there in visible death clothes, 
But the awful face was ghastly with corruption, and the sunken eyes gleamed forth a green, glassy glare, which seemed a veritable blast from the infernal fires below. To move or utter a sound in that hideous presence was impossible, and like a statue I sat and saw that horrid shape move slowly towards the bed. What was the awful scene enacted there I know not. I heard nothing except a low, stifled, agonized groan, and I saw the shadow of that ghastly messenger bending over the bed. Whether it was some dreadful but wordless sentence its breathless lips conveyed as it stood there, I know not, but for an instant the shadow of a claw-like hand, from which the third finger was missing, appeared extended over the doomed man's head, And then, as the clock struck one clear, silvery stroke, it fell, and a wild shriek rang through the room, a death shriek. I am not given to fainting, but I certainly confess that the next ten minutes of my existence was a cold blank. And even when I did manage to stagger to my feet, I gazed round, vainly endeavoring to understand the chilly horror which still possessed me. Thank God the room was rid of that awful presence. I saw that. So, gulping down some wine, I lighted a wax taper and staggered toward the bed. Ah, how I prayed that, after all, I might have been dreaming and that my own excited imagination had but conjured up some hideous memory of the dissecting room. But one glance was sufficient to answer that. No, the summons had indeed been given and answered. I flashed the light over the dead face, swollen, convulsed still with the death agony, but suddenly I shrank back. Even as I gazed, the expression of the face seemed to change. The blackness faded into a deathly whiteness. The convulsed features relaxed, and even as if the victim of that dread apparition still lived, a sad, solemn smile stole over the pale lips. I was intensely horrified, but still I retained sufficient self-consciousness to be struck professionally by such a phenomenon. Surely there was something more than supernatural agency in all this. Again, I scrutinized the dead face and even the throat and chest. With the exception of a tiny pimple on one temple beneath the cluster of hair, not a mark appeared. To look at the corpse, one would have believed that this man had indeed died by the visitation of God peacefully, whilst sleeping. How long I stood there, I know not, but time enough to gather my scattered senses and to reflect that, all things considered, my own position would be very unpleasant if I was found thus unexpectedly in the room of the mysteriously dead man. So, as noiselessly as I could, I made my way out of the house. No one met me on the private staircase. The little door opening into the road was easily unfastened, And thankful indeed was I to feel again the fresh, wintry air as I hurried along that road by the churchyard. There was a magnificent funeral soon in that church, and it was said that the young widow of the buried man was inconsolable. And then rumors got abroad of a horrible apparition which had been seen on the night of the death, and it was whispered that the young widow was terrified and insisted upon leaving her splendid mansion. I was too mystified with the whole affair to risk my reputation by saying what I knew, and I should have allowed my share in it to remain forever buried in oblivion had I not suddenly heard that the widow, objecting to many of the legacies in the last will of her husband, intended to dispute it 
on the score of insanity, and then there gradually arose the rumor of his belief in having received a mysterious summons. On this, I went to the lawyer and sent a message to the lady that, as the last person who had attended her husband, I undertook to prove his sanity, and I besought her to grant me an interview, in which I would relate as strange and horrible a story as ear had ever heard. The same evening, I received an invitation to go to the mansion. I was ushered immediately into a splendid room, and there, standing before the fire, was the most dazzlingly beautiful young creature I had ever seen. She was very small, but exquisitely made. Had it not been for the dignity of her carriage, I should have believed her a mere child. With a stately bow, she advanced, but did not speak. I come on a strange and painful errand, I began, and then I started, for I happened to glance full into her eyes, and from them down to the small right hand grasping the chair. The wedding ring was on that hand. I conclude you are the Mr. Reed who requested permission to tell me some absurd ghost story, and whom my late husband mentions here. And as she spoke, she stretched out her left hand towards something but what I knew not, for my eyes were fixed on that hand. Horror! White and delicate it might be, but it was shaped like a claw, and the third finger was missing. One sentence was enough after that. Madam, all I can tell you is that the ghost who summoned your husband was marked by a singular deformity. The third finger of the left hand was missing, I said sternly, and the next instant I had left that beautiful, sinful presence. That will was never disputed. The next morning, too, I received a check for a thousand pounds, and the next news I heard of the widow was that she had herself seen that awful apparition and had left the mansion immediately. The end. Did you say who wrote that? Yes. Uh, Ada... Buisson, B-U-I-S-S-O-N. Female writer. Yeah. When was that one written? In 1868. Was it in Pall Mall Magazine? It was not. It was in Belgravia. That's right. You told me this. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, Merry Christmas to our listeners. This is, I'm I'm glad we're to the point where we have traditions. We do. Yeah. Yeah. That's honestly hard to believe. Three years. The third annual. Yeah. It's crazy. That means when we, yeah, we did the first episode in 2018. Yeah, December 2018. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. We're heading back to the Olympic Peninsula. That's important because we were there right before the show kicked off. Right. We were in Washington when we announced Monster Opera. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Uh, Merry Christmas to our listeners, and, and uh, we hope everyone's staying safe and healthy this year. Uh, it's been a rough year, but but uh, we're here. We are here. We are here. We are on the precipice of uh, 2021. Can't get any worse, guys. <laughs> or can it? Oh, yeah, uh, that's a, that'll be next year's ghost story. Yeah. Um, anything you will we'll be us ghosts. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're the ghosts. stories from the beyond. <laughs> now, thanks for listening, everybody, for supporting the show. Um, it, it's it's amazing. Kind of like Seth said that we're still sitting down and in, in a new digs here and um, just grateful for everybody who writes in and listens and participates in the show. We appreciate you quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, 
have. We can't say that enough, honestly. Mm-hmm. I don't say it at all. Mark, I, I rely on Mark. <laughs> um, yeah, and thanks for tuning in. Every year, the numbers have, have gotten better, and there's more and more people listening all the time. So it's, uh, no, it's, uh, it's a nice, we have a great audience and people that interact with us, and I think that's a big part of any show and, and growing that show is is you guys interacting with us so if you uh have thoughts on this show on the last show send send them to monsteropolismail.gmail.com suggest topics that has been super helpful uh suggest things we can do shows about um, yeah for now i guess that's it we'll see you in the uh is it gonna be the new year no it'll be we'll do a show yeah we'll do something we'll be back something something All right. happy new year merry christmas everybody yep take care Monsteropolis is proudly presented on Wadsworth Community Radio 97.1 FM or streaming live at wadsworthcommunityradio.com and is proudly underwritten by Thurber's Jewelers on the Square in downtown Wadsworth.